Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub and welcome to a very special episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and as I believe I also just mentioned, this is a very special episode. It is the 200th episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a number which automatically imbues this episode with an arbitrary sense of importance. Which is why, as you probably noticed, this episode is twice as expensive and has a hologram cover. I mean, it's not every day you turn 200 years old. And I gotta tell you, lately, I feel every day of that. I'm kidding, of course. Corey and I aren't turning 200 years old. We were already alive when the show started. Although, were we really? I mean, how alive can you be if you aren't sharing your opinions about comic books with the internet? Hmm. Well, I'll leave that question to the philosophers. The point is, we're not 200, the show is. Which makes it a lot more like a 200th anniversary than a 200th birthday. So you might be asking yourself, what's an appropriate gift for a 200th anniversary? And I would say, you know what? Your listening is gift enough. I've really enjoyed getting to know so many of you over the years through correspondences and emails and just knowing that you're listening to the dumb crap I say is present enough. That's what I would say. Wikipedia, on the other hand, would inform us that the traditional anniversary gift for the 70th wedding anniversary is platinum, and the 60th is diamond. So I guess their answer would be two platinums and a diamond, which would also be nice. So if you're a traditionalist, you can send those platinums and that diamond to tighten up the defense P.O. Box 20311 Portland, Oregon 97294. Or you can just keep listening and, you know, maybe spread the word about the show or something. Up to you. As for what we've gotten for you, it's another episode. It's kind of a weird one, and it's got a different format. So, fuck it. Let's just get into it. Without any further ado, let's do this. <laughs> oh god, I forgot I triggered that balloons to drop now. Oh my. So many balloons. Too many balloons. This was a mistake. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty okay. How are you? I'm doing all right. Welcome to our 200th episode of Tighten Up the Defense. What? Yeah, I know. Wow. It's been a little over four years since we started this iteration of the show. The numbering gets a little wonky because there's also 60 episodes of Teen Titan Wasteland that came before it. So, I mean, if we're doing legacy numbering, then it's not our 200th. But what it definitely is, is 100 episodes since we did our special coverage of Skate Man. <laughs> wow, that's quite a milestone. And like Skate Man... We have a very special comic that we're going to cover for this momentous event. 
We're going to be talking about the Teen Titans Lost Annual number one. And goddamn, mm-hmm. this is a weird fucking comic book. Well, we haven't been exposed to Bob Haney's work for many issues now, and it was a refreshing breath of weirdness, for sure. It kind of was. Yeah, you, you bring up a good point. It's been, like, probably a little over four years since we've covered a Bob Haney issue. And so it is interesting to dip our toes back into those bizarre fucking waters. And that's part of why I wanted to hit this issue up for this auspiciously numbered episode. This comic book was published in 2008, but it was written in 2003. Uh, Bob Haney actually died in 2004, so this came out four years after his death. He was writing comics up until the early 80s, at which point he switched over and started doing some writing for cartoons, specifically, and I had not realized this until recently, Thundercats and Silverhawks. What? Which, in retrospect, kind of makes sense. I remember watching an episode of Thundercats where at the beginning of the episode, the tigery guy was about to go outside and Snarf yelled after him, Remember, Tigra, you can't turn invisible when you're underwater. And he just was like, oh, okay, I'll remember that. And when you know it came up later in the episode, and I was like, oh, I bet Bob Haney wrote that. <laughs> wow, so he wrote for the, the cartoons? Yeah. Oh, no shit. And he also published a book on carpentry. Really? Yeah. And then in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, he wrote three different titles for DC and came out of retirement to do that. And they were all nostalgia-type issues that were set during the Silver Age. And this was the final one of those. But as I said, it didn't get published until a few years after his death. And it's, in some ways, a very typical Haney book. But in a lot of ways, it's almost a too typical Haney book. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And one thing that really jumped out at me was this even though it, it has the kind of the the charm of that earlier syrup chugging titans era mm-hmm. there was also so much more explicit violence and implied sex than i'm used to seeing in even the i guess um i wouldn't say current but you know the where we're at in the new teen titan series that we're covering in the rest of the series Mm -hmm, and yeah yeah i know what you mean it's a weird combination of things i think where it's partly as i said at this point haney hadn't really written a comic book in about 30 years so i think he's trying to play to what he thinks is happening in comics right then but at the same time is almost doing an impression of bob haney You know what I mean? Like, he's leaning so hard into the weird and wackiness of the storyline. It's like he had been informed, okay, what people like about your old comics is how off-the-wall and wacky and steeped in a weird version of the zeitgeist of the 60s they were. And so he was like, oh, okay, I didn't realize what I was doing before was weird, but now I'm gonna try to be weird. It's... Like when you see a band that had broken up have a reunion tour, and it's like, 
Oh, this seems like actually just a pretty good cover band of the band that they used to be, even though it is the original members. Mm. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but that was the sense I kind of got reading this comic. I haven't gotten that, but I did kind of fall down a Misfits the Band rabbit hole on the internet a while back. Oh, no. <laughs> and and that's sort of like that, right? Where there's just been all these iterations and it still basically sounds the same, mm-hmm. but it is not the same. No. At all. That's all I'm going to say about that. That is fair. Yeah, I saw, I think, Foreigner a little while ago, and it was like probably about 70% original members, but mostly they just seemed like a very good Foreigner cover band. Mm. But that's kind of what I get from Haney here. There's a story about Picasso, I think, being asked to pick out from a stack of paintings which paintings were original Picassos and which were forgeries. And he picked out like three of them very quickly. And the person was like, but I saw you paint two of those. And he's like, yeah, so what? I can fake a Picasso as good as the next person. (laughs) Which is a really charming story. And, you know, makes me wish that Pablo Picasso wasn't a total piece of shit. But this kind of strikes me as Haney faking a Haney. Mm. But doing a pretty good job of it. Mm -hmm. That being said, it is a very bizarre and twisted and convoluted issue. And normally the format that we follow for these shows is I'll do a synopsis of the plot. And then once the plot's out of the way, we'll talk about the things that were striking about the issue and talk about the plot at times when it makes us go, wait, what the fuck was that? Mm -hmm. The thing is, in this comic book, almost every aspect of the plot makes me say, wait, what the fuck was that? So I think we're going to take the skate man approach to this, where we just kind of do a walkthrough of the issue and try to figure out exactly what the plot was. Does that sound okay to you? Uh, what the shit do you care, pig meat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds, that sounds fine. Let's, let's skate man it up. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> I, I wasn't calling you pig meat. No, I understand. Record. No, okay. I, yeah. So let's take a look at the issue. It is the Lost Teen Titans Annual. It is titled President Kennedy Has Been Kidnapped. Or Teen Titans Twang. Wait, where are you getting that as the a possible title? Oh, it's on the first page where oh. it says Teen Titans, but then there's a giant sound effect under it where Speedy's riding on his, his arrow thing, and it says twang. Yeah, you're right. It looks like he's maybe farting the word twang. Oh, I mean, it's a sound effect and it's just placed right under his butt and he's not Mm -hmm. firing the arrow currently that he's riding on. So perhaps his farts make the noise twang. There's a lot about Speedy that we don't know. He's a real enigma. Yep. Real fart enigma. (laughs) Indeed. Well, this is off to a good start. Agreed. What did you (laughs) think of the art in this issue? Oh, man, I really enjoyed it. It was, you know, a throwback to simpler times (laughs) not necessarily less confusing times but you know seeing seeing the titans depicted more youthfully and kind of just more i don't know if simple is the right way to describe the style but it was refreshing you know yeah it's a blast blast from the past yeah there's a real pop art sensibility to the artists who work on this title 
I'm less familiar with the penciler, Jay Stevens. He's mostly known for doing animation, which makes sense with the style that he has here. He had a couple of shows on Nickelodeon, I think Jet Cat and Tuttenstein, which I'm not particularly familiar with, but I have seen some of his comic book work. And he's worked with Mike Alred, the inker of this, quite a bit. And their styles work really well together because I think they are both really influenced by pop art and leaning into that aesthetic. And Mike Alred is one of my favorite artists. Uh, He's probably best known for doing Madman in the 90s, which I loved. He's best known by me for that anyway. I know since then he did a series called Ecstatics that was pretty popular. He's currently doing a run on Silver Surfer, or did recently. But he has a very distinct art style, and I think it works best when he's colored by his wife, Laura Allred, and that is the case in this issue. And yeah, the three of them work really, really well together. You get the really vibrant colors that are very appropriate for this book, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very crisp. Everything really pops. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Nick Cardi cover, which is just awesome. It really is. Nick Cardi is still maybe my favorite artist ever and definitely my favorite cover artist. And yeah, I know he doesn't do the interior art, which I would have loved to have seen, but I also understand that he hadn't, I think, been working regularly as an artist for quite some time at this point. But uh, it's great to see him and Haney together in any capacity. And he does both the cover of this and then at the end of it, some pencil sketches of the Teen Titans, which are just gorgeous. Yeah, very cool. And yeah, he's got to be in his, I think, 80s at this point and still doing spectacular work in this issue. Yep. The opening page shows Wonder Girl, Kid Flash, Aqualad, and Speedy zooming towards the Titans cave? which sometimes they have, I guess. (laughs) During the Haney era, it was really inconsistent what and where their headquarters was and whether they had one, but I really like the Titans cave as it is depicted in this book. But as we were introduced to those four characters, they each get a bit of very Haney-esque, both weird and flowery introduction that all starts with the phrase, Whither goest thou? Mm -hmm. My favorite, I think, is obviously going to be the the Aqualad one. The Whither goest thou, charismatic commandant of the deep? The apex of aquatic action? Yeah, that was great. I really liked Speedy's also, which goes, And whither goest thou? The lithe, livid Lothario of the ultra-taut bowstring and the epitome of accuracy with any kind of arrow? Pretty great. Twang. Yeah, those are really, really fun and very, I think, effective in setting the table for this is going to be a nostalgia issue. And boy, is it. We get that really underlined on the next page, which is a two-page spread of the Titans in their Titans cave, and you see all of this memorabilia from their very early adventures all over the place. And it was just really nice to see all that. We get the motorized flying surfboard that 
What was the name of the band that played that? The Flips? I think it was The Flips, yeah. Yeah, that The Flips played as part of their adventure. You get the giant syringe that they had to inject the separated man with. You see the ant's costume. There's the conquistador in the background. There's Honey Bucket, the weird robot that they fought that had a metal bow tie. Oh, Honey Bucket. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. There's Ding Dong Daddy Dowd's dragster in the back. And, of course, the, like, giant floating separated eyeball of the separated man. And it's just really cool. It is cool. It's also a little creepy because it's like these are all the trophies of their vanquished enemies that they've collected. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it would make sense that Robin maybe picked that habit up from Batman. Mm. Because that's what the Batcave is filled with as well. Although, yeah, you're right. I don't think Batman had any body parts from his defeated enemies (laughs) on display. Yeah, trying to one-up the old man, I guess. (laughs) And Aqualad, just for the record, seems a little freaked out by it all in that opening panel. Like, everybody else is, like, hanging out, and he's just sort of cowering behind this computer, peeking around the corner. It seems as though maybe... And this is something that continues throughout the issue. They forgot until the last minute that Aqualad was supposed to be there. And so they just drew his face real small, hiding behind a piece of the computer at the last Mm -hmm. minute. That was kind of the impression that I got. And it would make sense with the way he is treated throughout this issue, or rather isn't treated throughout this issue. Such a waste. The other thing which dominates our view is a giant view screen image of President Kennedy. Wonder Girl is delighted to see that giant image of Kennedy and says, oh, the president, he's such a dreamboat. And there's some confusing dialogue where Kid Flash is kind of chiding Wonder Girl for having a crush on the president, but Speedy thinks it's, I don't know, both patriotic and kind of hot that she's so into the president. But also cliched. It's a really confusing speech bubble from Speedy. Yeah, but there's really no time to dwell on that, which is, again, kind of a theme for this issue, because Robin launches right into, you're all wrong, that's not really JFK, that's a very cunning shapeshifter who's imitating the president. President Kennedy has been kidnapped. And wow, we are just off to the races right away. Yep. It's kind of... Weird, because when I saw that, I was like, oh, wow, this is like the epitome of a Teen Titans storyline. Like, they were always running off and doing favors for President Kennedy. And I remember that being the case. But also, the Teen Titans didn't actually debut until after Kennedy was assassinated. Hmm. So I think it's one of those where, I mean, Haney obviously knew that, but... It's such a 60s nostalgia episode in general that it just takes things from any aspect of the 60s and really of the original Silver Age run of the Titans and just throws it all in there, regardless of when in the 60s it happened, when in the Silver Age run it happened. It's kind of like, I think, if you were making a 90s period piece and you just were like okay so the main character is watching the matrix well he listens to nirvana on his headphones and wears a friend's t-shirt and eats a big bag of sun-dried tomatoes (laughs) pretty much 
So the Titans are understandably a bit taken aback by Robin's declaration, as I think any of us would be. Yeah, I had the note to myself that Robin is now a conspiracy guy. Oh, shit. Absolutely. Turns out he's, he's right, but he's, I was just like, oh. And I would say it turns out Robin's right, but is kind of a running theme for this issue. <laughs> but. <laughs> yeah. The rest of the Titans are, are kind of incredulous, so he goes on to explain exactly what's going on. See, it turns out Robin was recently in the White House where he was about to interview the president for a magazine that the Teen Titans are going to publish. Yeah, was that? That was never a thing, was it? No, but I want to read the Titans zine. And I love the idea that they get to interview the president for a zine. Yeah, it's... That's so heiny. Just that, like... Oh, I need to explain this tiny detail. Why is he at the White House? Um, it's like Occam's giant rubber mallet, <laughs> where the least likely, most complicated <laughs> explanation is the one that we're going to go with, and then we won't explain it at all. Well, the, the razor was lost at some point, and <laughs> all we've got left is this giant mallet. Yeah. Yeah, just going to try to hammer these errant follicles of hair back into my face with it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good metaphor for reading this comic. Not bad. Thank you. So Kennedy is, of course, delighted to interview this teenager for his zine and gives him a tour of the White House. He's just moved in, I think. I think this story's supposed to take place in, like, 1961, maybe? Because it's, I think, pre-Cuban Missile Crisis. I think maybe he's just been inaugurated. The timeline, as throughout this comic book, is a little bit complicated in terms of that. But he's, he's new to the White House, so he's showing Robin around. He shows him some of his World War II memorabilia. His lucky hat from when he was a commander of the PT-109 boat during World War II. And some old pictures. And I like the idea that, like, he's just moved into the White House and he's just, like, put up his posters and just redecorated the place with a bunch of his bric-a-brac. I think that's a fun idea. Yeah, this issue kept reminding me fondly of my maternal grandfather, Melvin, who is uh, from Massachusetts, super big JFK fan, but also really curious about what really happened. Oh, my. And had tons of books on the topic. And uh, as a child, gave me a model of the PT-109 to put together. Like, he was... Oh, wow. Yeah, really into all this stuff. And I was just like, man, I wonder if Grandpa Melvin never read, read this comic. <laughs> Probably not. I would be pretty surprised. I mean, it did come out in 2008. Oh, yeah. But Robin has a ton of questions. He especially wants to really pick Kennedy's brain about the trauma that he suffered during World War II. And, you know, uh, Jack is super into telling him that, but he's a little bit sleepy right now. So uh, Robin goes, crashes out in the Lincoln bedroom, pretty stoked to be in there, drops a little history nugget about the fact that people aren't sure if Lincoln actually slept there, but it was where he held meetings during the Civil War. I also like the idea that the Lincoln bedroom just has a single twin bed in it. Mm -hmm. Just wants to make sure nobody gets up to any hanky-panky in there. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, true to history. Honest Abe and Mary Todd slept in uh, separate beds. Oh, yeah. Good thinking. I mean, I just mean it's the White House guest bedroom, and I, I, I would be pretty surprised if it was a twin bed. But, but maybe it is like, yes, if you want to do some Lincoln cosplaying, that is where you go for that. And so, yeah, you have uh, Honest Abe sleeping out on the sofa bed and Mary Todd up in the other Lincoln bedroom. It's a nice uh, glass ashtray on the nightstand. little time capsule there. Mm-hmm. But in the middle of the night, Robin gets woken up. Well, he gets woken up by a weird vibe. <laughs> it's a strange aura permeating the entire wing of the White House. And uh, so he puts on his mask and he goes down there and he sees a Secret Service man frozen in place. Weird. Definitely weird. Not quite as weird as what follows. He proceeds down into the White House proper and he sees President Kennedy being kidnapped by some blue-skinned space, the Beatles. Yep, yep. They've got Beatles-esque hair. Early early Beatles. Mm-hmm. And they've got the uh, the suits that they would have worn during the early stages of the British invasion. They're just kind of like moths, and they have, yeah, Beatles bobs. They're taking the president, and they have installed a shapeshifter in his place. Now, they don't see Robin, fortunately. Uh, but they take the president, and off they go. And poor Robin is just like, oh man, nobody is going to believe me when I tell them about this shit. Yeah, he specifically pictures Batman and Batgirl and Metamorpho for some reason, just laughing their asses off when he tries to tell them what's up. So, he goes to the only people he knows will definitely believe him that he can trust. The other Teen Titans. And they don't believe him. Yeah, he has a tough sell there. And in that scene, there's... I think it's intentional, but I'm curious to get your read on it, where Speedy kind of breaks the fourth wall and stares right out at us and says, Yeah, who'd believe a politician was a shapeshifter? Yeah, I'm not sure in which way he was breaking the fourth wall, though. He definitely is addressing the audience with that. And I don't know if it's a reference to this comic book, or I don't know what other comic books were coming out in 2008. It seemed almost like he was poking fun at another storyline, or I guess it would be around 2003. I guess it would make sense if he was just saying, so this is a pretty crazy story, huh, you guys? But I got the vague feeling that he was making fun of something else that I just wasn't quite catching. Oh, I just read it as straight up like a political commentary. Just don't trust politicians because they're shifty. Oh, that works too. I think I was taking too literal a read on it, maybe. But yeah, either way, they are just like completely unconvinced by this. Wonder Girl looks shocked. Speedy looks kind of bored. Aqualad is astonished, and Kid Flash straight up laughs at him. But then Robin says, No, you should believe me. And then they all believe him. Yep. So that's nice. And then they give maybe the silliest team motto that they've never used before, but they all do the thing where they put their hands in the middle and, like, do a go team thing, and they say, Teen Titans forever! That's very stirring. It's very stirring, but if you have teen as part of the name of your team, then you can't have the forever be a part of it. Mm. I mean, unless it's like a Forever 21 type thing. (laughs) 
for for every 80, <laughs> what was it 68 88 uh it was the wilford brimley store right yeah it was like forever 65 oh that's right yeah rest in peace hmm. but they do their let's be teenagers forever chant and i mean to be fair they did hold on to being teenagers for quite some time i think robin finally aged out of it in what was it 87 in the comics we just covered so i mean it's not forever but he did have a good nearly 50 year run as a teen so mm-hmm. that's not nothing no hard to sneeze at yeah then aqualad brings up on the view screen the planet illustro which wasn't that the name of like a fat substitute that was popular in the like early 2000s that caused anal leakage that was uh olestra so pretty close okay yeah i remember there was warnings on bags of potato chips <laughs> like <laughs> if you eat this whole bag you're totally gonna shit yourself yep but aqualad pulls up planet anal leakage on the view screen <laughs> and says all right well i'm gonna try to teleport us all there but I don't know how to work this thing, and we might end up anywhere in the universe. And Wonder Girl's like, oh, details, details. And Aqualad is like, all right, fair enough. Anyway, I'm not going to go with you guys, even though I strongly implied that I was in the last panel. I'm just going to push this button, and off you go. I'll take care of things here. Bye, guys. Yeah, that was weird. He literally says, we may wind up anywhere. Yeah. And then it's like, bye, guys. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty abrupt transition. I think maybe he was a little bit concerned by how unconcerned Wonder Girl was. Like, I think maybe his plan would had been like, well, as this currently is configured, we could wind up anywhere and then trailed off before adding the. So I'm going to try to work out the coordinates a little better. And Wonder Girl's just like, yeah, whatever, let's just go. And he's like, really? You guys are. Okay, well, I'm going to stay here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Push this button. Off they go. And with a varoom, they are sent careening through light years of space to the planet Anal Leakage. And what a planet it is. Man, that first scene when they land, I, I don't know what it reminded you of, but it very much reminded me of if there was like a science fiction version of the smurfs village oh totally yeah it's like a high-tech hobbit town yeah populated by all those like purple early beetles looking guys Mm-hmm. who also even though they look early beetles they also really remind me of like i don't know radiohead or, or something do you think it's possible that maybe radiohead was influenced by the beetles Maybe. I don't know. I'm, I'm just, just blue sky and ideas here, Corey. Yeah. But uh, they don't receive a particularly warm welcome. The space beetles, or possibly space radiohead, all have ray guns pointed at them for like a second. Until uh, Wally uh, runs around and relieves them of their, uh, their sidearms. Mm-hmm. And... Speedy tells them it's not polite to aim weapons at people as he aims a weapon at them. And, uh, yeah, Robin eventually calms everybody down and says, hey, 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 this is a peaceful mission. 
which was interesting because I don't know that it necessarily would be a peaceful mission when he's like, all I know about you guys is that you kidnapped our president, who we're pretty fond of. Yeah, he definitely starts it off by trying to play nice. And continues to, frankly. They get taken to the leader of the Space Beatles, who is a guy named Gwinnett, which really cracked me up. Yep. Do you think he is maybe named after Button Gwinnett, the most delightfully named signer of the original Declaration of Independence? Um, I don't see why not. Button? Yeah, Button Gwinnett. Isn't that, that a great name? That is a hell of a name. B-U-T-T-O-N? Yep. Oh, what a childhood he must have had. Yeah, I know that his name was Button Gwinnett. He signed the Declaration of Independence, and he was killed in a duel in 1777. I have actively avoided learning anything else about him, because I know that he was a, the delegate from Georgia, and I'm like, hmm, I find that name really, really charming. I'm going to avoid learning anything else about this rich white dude from the South in the late 1700s, because I don't see that ending well. Yeah, good call. But yeah, Button Gwinnett, pretty good name. All right, so that's what we'll call the leader of the um, Olestrians. Mm-hmm. Now, Button here is a disembodied brain that lives inside a computer. And he was killed a little bit over 100 years ago during, during this planetary civil war. And since then, he's been the leader of the Mop Tops. When he's revealing his history to us on page 13 is the first time that we see what to me was shockingly explicit violence compared to, you know, as, as I was reading this, I was like, oh, this is going to be like all the other early Haney stuff we read where, you know, people get knocked out maybe and that's the worst that happens to him. Mm -hmm. And you see his head being severed from his body with a blood spray and his tongue's lolling and his eyes are crossing. And I was just like, holy fucking shit. I was not expecting that. No, it is a remarkably violent and also remarkably goofy panel. It is very, very striking. And yeah, we find out that the, the space mop tops have been at war with a group of, I'm going to call them hippie space werewolves. Does that seem accurate? Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty good. What did I call them? Hippie somethings also. Who also all wear Aquaman pants, it seems like. They've they've got these green, like fish scaled pants that they're wearing, but they're very much hippie werewolves. And they are called the Violators, and the Mop Tops call them that because of their quote bestial natures, unquote. Yeah, I think I found by notes I referred to them as uh, berserker space hippies that fly around on inverted weed pipes. Yeah, I noticed that about them as well. <laughs> <laughs> so how does President Kennedy work into this? Well, <laughs> obviously they needed his, as of yet historically unproven, except for his experience. Experience, I guess, piloting PT-109. Um, military strategy genius. Yeah. To once and for all put an end to the long 
running war with the violators. Interesting choice. <laughs> I guess they watched the entire galaxy and they decided that John F. Kennedy in 1960 probably was the greatest military strategist in the universe. It's like he saved all those guys on that one small boat. <laughs> it was so brave. And so he's the guy that they want in charge of their planet, I guess. Yeah, or at least just the military. Right, because he is still taking orders kind of from Gwinnett. Oh yeah, Button's calling the shots. Yeah, he's kind of called in Kennedy to be his wartime consigliere, but Button Gwinnett is still the mafia don. And as part of that, he has in fact brainwashed President Kennedy, who does not remember that he is from Earth, but some of the details of his life on Earth have been placed into a different context. He believes he served in the Navy of the planet Volkswagen or something. I forget exactly what it was. I think it starts with a V, yeah. Yeah, so they did a specific brainwashing that fudged the names of where he was from, but other than that, very few of the details. So it's like he was brainwashed, but on the gentle cycle and in cold water. But he definitely doesn't know he's from Earth. And he definitely thinks that we gotta put a stop to these violators. And, as this is being explained to the Titans, the violators fly in on their inverted weed pipes and wield their scimitars and attack. And wow, is it quite a scene. It is amazing. The Titans, despite the fact that their president has been kidnapped by these people, decide to take the space mods at their word and side with them against the hippie space werewolves. And Wonder Girl specifically throws herself into the battle and just starts punching space hippie werewolves. Speedy starts shooting them with arrows. Kid Flash makes a little tornado. They're all surprised when the hippie space werewolves put down their swords and start shooting ray guns at them. And Robin more or less sits this one out, as was kind of a thing that he did a lot back in the day, which was kind of nice to see again. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to let the more powerful people or people with, you know, weapons fight this one. I guess he jumped out to fight the guys and then was immediately like, oh, they seem pretty tough. Uh, I want to go back in the spaceship. So he has Wonder Girl give him a ride back to the spaceship and then she goes back into battle and he has a little chat with Kennedy. Yeah, and it's at this point where he, he, he goes back in, he's having his chat with the, the president and he has a real kind of Hamlet moment where... <laughs> He actually quotes Shakespeare to himself and says, oh, my prophetic soul. I was afraid of this happening. The president has been brainwashed. Of course, how else can these Olestrians get him to cooperate? Yeah. And the other thing that comes out during this is that this is a very old war and nobody remembers how it began or why they're fighting. That's the worst. I hear you. But Wonder Girl is once again in the heat of the battle. She picks out the leader of the space werewolves and just starts uh, pounding the crud out of him. There's a big back and forth. She also brings up the fact that she thinks he's pretty hot and that sentiment is reciprocated. And then she beats the shit out of him and knocks him out. 
and then makes out with him before he wakes up. Yup. Interesting choice. Yep. He uh, also has a weird reaction to it where he wakes up and he's like, I had a dream. I just, we fought, then you kissed me, and now I'm just going to lick my fingers? Yeah. A weirdly drawn panel. It is. I mean, we don't know the full details of his dream. In terms of dreams, there are, you know, a lot of jump cuts and weird transitions. So maybe he was just getting to the part where he was like, I dreamed that we fought and then my foe knocked me out and then kissed me. And then I ate some Kentucky Fried Chicken. (laughs) Yeah, could be. And Wonder Girl's like, she doesn't cop to the fact that she made out with him while he was asleep. But she's like, oh, I didn't know you people had dreams. Basically just being like, oh, it never occurred to me that you might be people. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, yeah, we totally have dreams and thoughts and wishes and a stereotypical culture (laughs) (laughs) that is very much in the tradition of the noble savage trope of Western literature, which both romanticizes and dehumanizes non-white cultures. We got one of those going on. And she's like, oh, tell me more. She's like, that is so hot. And then he's like, I hope you haven't fallen for that propaganda from the Illustrians. And she had. And she does take him as her prisoner. Which he also finds hot. Yep. They are super hot for one another. And I hope this isn't a Terry Long situation, but there is no indication that he is not a full-grown man and she is a teenager, and that part is super creepy and also super in keeping with the Bob Haney tradition of the Teen Titans. And as we get to the end, we do learn more about their relationship that definitely reinforces the absolute total creepiness of it, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Indeed we will. But. For the time being, Wonder Girl takes, uh, what's his name? Zoltan? Zora. Yeah. Takes Zora up to the Illustrian spaceship as her captive. She flies in there, and, uh, Kennedy's pretty stoked to have a captive. The Illustrians are about to shoot him on sight, but he's like, no, wait, hold on a second. First, I need to say that it's too bad that we're shooting him, and then we'll shoot him. It's a weird exchange that Kennedy doesn't come off particularly good in, I gotta say. No, it's not a good look. We also see our first bald Illustrian. Yeah, which made me wonder if they were all wearing wigs and his fell off, or if just some of them are bald. They look really like they could all be wearing wigs. Yeah, and not particularly convincing ones at that. I like the idea of, Oh, we want to look like your Earth humans, and we saw one broadcast of the Beatles and decided that's what Earth humans look like. So, here we go. Yeah, and just a little detail to you, after the, the scene in which Wonder Girl makes out with Zora, there's it's kind of a close-up of them, and we see he's wearing this headband that's like blue with little green, like what I can only assume are space weed leaves all over it. And then in all the following panels, there's no more leaves on his headband. Oh, maybe he burned them all up in his flying inverted pipe. Could be, could be. As I had said, Kennedy doesn't come off particularly good in this. Certainly not like a military genius. Or a diplomatic 
one or just a moral human being <laughs> because Robin's like, hey, maybe we can negotiate some peace with these guys. And Kennedy is like, yes, I want peace more than anything else. Peace after we crush them thoroughly. So we're going to have to kill this guy that you took captive. And so then Zola says, fuck this, and then jumps out of the spaceship. Yeah, to commit suicide because he's about to be murdered anyway, I guess. But Wonder Girl sees this as both a noble and futile gesture and jumps out of the plane to rescue him. And then they fall in love for the third time in the issue already and make out some more. Zola's like, oh my god, if you married me, I would totally not jump out of any more spaceships. And she's like, oh, okay, well, maybe we will. Yeah, that's the most romantic thing I've ever heard. Yeah, marry me or I'll commit suicide. Oh, how hot. Yeah, this is the basis for a lasting, healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. Kid Flash caught wind of all this because he did the most titany thing that someone can do, which is a session of super speed eavesdropping. Mm -hmm. And comes back and reports to the rest of the Titans... Hey, you guys, did you hear the word? Those two are in love, and they're talking about getting married. And the gang is like, uh, okay. And Wonder Girl and Zora fly back to Zora's people, because now that they're engaged, she has abruptly decided to switch sides in this war. Yeah, gosh, if only we had the sucker category for this. Yeah, although honestly, I gotta say, it's not that out of character for the way that Haney wrote Wonder Girl. I think we saw this almost exact scenario play out before when she ended up living with some kind of a sheik at one point. Does that ring a bell for you? I know, but we read so many. But <laughs> the, the fact that, yeah, it's, I do think Haney really portrayed her as emotionally uh, capricious. So mm -hmm. that makes sense. So Donna's defected to Team Space Werewolf with her new lover, which is a word that everyone in this comic book repeats a lot in description of their relationship, which I found very unsettling. It gives the sense that their relationship has been consummated. Yeah, who knows? Either way, it's just, I, I think I've said it before, that word only doesn't gross me out if it is preceded by meat or veggie <laughs> like a pizza advert yeah okay but as the lovers <laughs> are off in the uh hippie space werewolf camp robin has an idea yeah so robin has the bright idea that if he can zip back to earth and grab jfk's lucky hat <laughs> he'll probably be able to jar some sense into him back on Olestra. Sure. Why not? So it's kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but the other crucial part of his plan, in addition to the lucky hat, is that he also needs to smash a spaceship into JFK's spaceship. Yeah. His plan is basically to harness the power of JFK's World War II PTSD. and use that trauma to snap him back to his senses, which is a horrible plan, but... <laughs> Strangely effective. Yes. 
But just, yeah, horrific on, on like, both in terms of logistics and morality and every other conceivable level. But seems to work okay. He tricks Kennedy into wearing the lucky hat. (laughs) Which, that, I mean, that's quite a feat. Yeah, no kidding. Step one of my plan. Get brainwashed President Kennedy to wear his lucky hat. Mm-hmm. I think just that sentence ends up summing up this issue pretty well. That yeah, pretty much covers it. Gosh, I guess we just could have said that. <laughs> Gone straight to the minutia. Yeah. But since we started, let's continue. Right. President's got his lucky hat on. There's a big climactic battle with the space werewolves that's about to begin. The Teen Titans decide, for really no apparent reason other than they met them first, to side with the space mod beetles who have kidnapped their president and brainwashed him. And uh, Kid Flash runs around, collects as many of the hippie space werewolf swords as he can, which as a battle strategy isn't the best because it's been brought up that they prefer using their swords, but if they don't have them, they'll use their ray guns, which seem like they're maybe more destructive. But that's where he decided to land on his plan. And he does a pretty good job with it. Mm -hmm. Wonder Girl and Speedy engage in an aerial battle with Speedy shooting net arrows at her and her batting them aside with her magic bracelets as she extols the virtues of her new lover Uh before eventually being sealed in a, I don't know, a blob blob of goo arrow that Speedy fires. But here comes Zora, who shatters that blob of goo with his sword, and the space beetles by and large seem to beat a hasty retreat. Or something. But as you said, the thrust of the battle scheme takes place when Robin commandeers a spaceship and crashes it into the side of Kennedy's spaceship, which triggers his post-traumatic stress disorder. And there's a close-up of his eyeballs with the alphanumeric PT-109 superimposed over his eyeballs. And the spaceship crash causes some amazing sound effects. Maybe my favorite being... Pwip! Oh, I'm sorry. Yours is... Pwip! Pwip is nice. I'm a big fan of... Grunch! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Popular music from the 90s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Grunch music. That's what, uh, that that kid was listening to in our 90s montage while he was watching The Matrix and eating sun-dried tomatoes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the combination of having a boat crash into him while he is wearing his lucky hat, well, I mean, first it knocks the president unconscious and nearly kills him, but when he wakes up, he's like, whoa, I suddenly remember everything and I'm perfectly fine. And he tells the space beetles to knock it off and stop being at war. And so they all decide to. That was all it took. Yeah. 
maybe somebody also traumatized some of the space hippie werewolves because they get with the program and decide that they will stop fighting also. The Teen Titans are like, well, guess we better head home. I guess Wonder Girl's probably going to want to stay here with her new fiancé. But then Wonder Girl comes back and explains that. She's like, hey guys, sorry. Uh, a little bit of confusion. Turns out Zora is a polygamist who wanted me to be his fourth wife, and I didn't like that. Yeah. So, I'm gonna come back and live with you guys. And she cries a lot, and Robin hugs her, and is incredibly condescending and says, There, my wondrous one, you followed your heart's dictates. A person can never regret that. And the way that he's drawing in that scene, like, she's crying and is super mixed up about it and feeling horrible. And he's smirking (laughs) as he says that, maybe even laughing behind her. Yeah, what a fucking dick. Ugh. I mean, well, literally. Uh, he is Dick Grayson. Yeah, he has never not lived up to his name. Mm-hmm. And then Wendy's like, oh my god, there's Kennedy. Dude, I am so sorry. He's like, hey, don't sweat it. <laughs> it's cool. I'm totally chill now that I'm not brainwashed anymore. Thanks, Robin. And thanks, Lucky Hat. Yep. And a special thanks to World War II trauma. Once again, saving the day. Yeah, it is a really weird scene and, again, really leans heavily into the trope, as I said, of the both romanticization and dehumanizing of non-white cultures, because the space hippie werewolves were definitely stand-ins for either the way Native Americans are often portrayed or the way that Arabic culture is portrayed. And that is really driven home by the He wanted me to be his fourth wife. He said I was the youngest and most beautiful, so I would be his head wife. But still, what a backwards culture. And it, I mean, unfortunately is very in keeping with the Bob Haney Silver Age tradition, but also was just shitty to read again. Yep. Then Haney says, so uh, I could tell you everything that happened after that, but that would just be boring, so everybody's back on Earth. Yep. I think Kennedy said something about ushering a new golden age to planet anal leakage. They're going to have a real Camelot there, and so everything's going to be great there. So they don't need him anymore, and they all get beamed back to Earth and congratulate each other on a job well done. And Kennedy's like, well, guess I'd better get back to the White House and my wife and child and, you know, get back to running the United States. But Aqualad shows up and is like, um, you guys are going to want to see this. (laughs) Yeah, about that. First of all, there was a Cuban Missile Crisis while you were gone, which means that the shapeshifter was probably responsible for the most definitive moments of Kennedy's administration, which I think is an interesting twist to put on it. His entire presidency, I think. Nearly. If we are to read that it started in 1961, which was definitely the feeling that I got, then yeah. Anyway, the point is Aqualad basically tells them, hey, Look at this. The shapeshifter who was impersonating President Kennedy was just assassinated, and the entire nation is in mourning. And we see some 
footage from that. And it's very disturbing. And everybody is freaked out. It is a beautiful page where the panels of that being explained to Kennedy and the Titans by Aqualad are superimposed over the faces of the five Titans, which is weird because Aqualad is the one telling the story, but we also see his shocked reaction to being told the story, but it is beautifully laid out. And Kennedy's reaction, his first reaction seems like mild embarrassment at having been assassinated. He like puts his hand to his forehead and seems to do like a, Mm -hmm. The Titans are like, well, shit, you better get back to the White House and explain to everybody that that was a shapeshifter. And he's like, nah, I think that would freak everybody out. So I guess I'll abandon my wife and children and go back to space. Illustra needs me, even though we never saw that they needed him for anything in particular at that point. You know? Golden age of uh, peace and freedom ushered in. Job well done. But he decides that they need him more there than they do on Earth. So he heads back to space and joins up with a band of swashbuckling multicultural space pirates. Yeah. So good for him. And the Titans uh, cry and are upset, I guess, that the shapeshifter got murdered. Yeah. It's a little unclear why Donna's crying. Well, it's because she'll always be in love with Zora, no matter what happens to me. Oh, right. I forgot that's why she's upset. Because, yeah, she's always going to be in love with that guy that she decided that she wasn't in love with because he was a gross, misogynist dude. Yeah. And and also, just the last thing that Kennedy does before he has them beam him back to Olastra is swear them all to secrecy. Right. It's the ultimate secret. Yep. Which makes it the ultimate weapon, because if I remember my mask commercials, uh, deception is the ultimate weapon. Mm-hmm. So that's why the Titans are so powerful, because they have the ultimate secret that the President Kennedy that was assassinated was a shape-shifting alien, and the real... President Kennedy is now a swashbuckling space pirate on the planet Anal Leakage. So many people have wondered. (laughs) I know. For so long. (laughs) Mystery solved. Was that one of the conspiracies that your grandpa Melvin shared with you? Oh, he didn't really share any with me. He didn't like talk about it a lot. He just had a lot of books about it. Oh, and was like, hey, reach your own conclusions. Mm Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Real Jesuit of a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. I do like to, at the the very ending panel of this, there's a thing that says the end, but above the end are little words that say never. I like that too. I think this issue in a lot of ways is a kind of fitting note for Haney to go out on. It was goofy and frustrating and sexist in the way that a lot of his stories were. But also like a lot of his stories, I gotta say, despite all of the brain-breaking confusion of this issue. I really enjoyed spending some time in it and uh, enjoyed that blast from the past. How'd you feel about it? Yeah, same boat. You know, it was problematic in the ways I guess I expected it to be. Mm -hmm. It was also a a fun, yeah, kind of bit of nostalgia 
for the older uh, Teen Titans. Yeah. And then, as we mentioned before, there's like four pages of pencil sketches that Nick Cardi does of the Titans, and they're really good. I love Nick Cardi so much. Yep. Yeah, those are great. And Aqualad really does look like a young Tom Jones in these, I gotta say. Uh Uh-huh. Which is weird, because I always think of that as being the George Perez interpretation of Aqualad rather than Cardi, but... Now you see it. Yeah, Cardi draws a heck of a Tom Jones Aqualad. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you ready to get into the minutia? Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) This is a good hour and a quarter (laughs) trying to explain what just happened, but... All right. Well, uh, let's get into the minutia. Rick, will you sing us in to our 200th Tighten Up the Defense minutia? Woo! We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, since this is an old Teen Titans Bob Haney issue, let's bring back a category of minutia from the Teen Titan Wasteland days. What was your favorite piece of slang in this issue? You know, I read this one backwards and forwards looking for a good tidbit of, you know, 1960s slang written in 2008. And I got to say, I came up short. But in the absence of of slang, what I did come up with was a turn of phrase from Flasher, who, when they're uh, having, you know, kind of a worried discussion about Donna having gone bananas over Zora, he says, I think she's gone a little more than the pointy yellow fruit. (laughs) (laughs) I had the exact same one. (laughs) I, too, was expecting, I was like, oh, it's a Bob Haney Teen Titans issue. There's going to be a bunch of Check Flasherino and Gear and Ginchy. Uh, and we didn't really get a ton of that. Natch. Yeah. But yeah, we did definitely get that. More than pointy yellow fruits. Yeah. Which made it seem like maybe Kid Flash didn't know what a banana was. Because Speedy had just said, uh, she's bananas over this guy. And then. I think a couple panels later is when Kid Flash says, like, oh, she's more than pointy yellow fruit. It makes it look like maybe he did just use his super speed to go find a dictionary, look that up, and was like, oh, banana, that's what a banana is. Okay. And then uh, it's like trying to prove that he knows what Speedy is talking about. So, yeah, I had that also as my favorite piece of slang that was used in this. Yeah, pointy yellow fruit. She's gotten real pointy yellow fruit over that Zora guy. All right. Wow. That's an odd choice for both of us that we both got that, but all right. Mm-hmm. Who did you have as your president of the drama club in this issue? Oh, this one was easy for me because uh, Robin was just quoting Shakespeare. Oh, my prophetic soul <laughs> on page 20. So, Good call. What Shakespeare is that from? Do you know? That's from Hamlet. That's oh. when... Uh, it's like the, the phrase for like when it dawns on you, like you've got a funny feeling about something and then all the pieces fall into place and you're like, oh, of course they were plotting this awful thing. Mm. He says, oh, my prophetic soul. Very nice. I had Donna as my choice because she was so very melodramatic and extremely emotional in every stage of her relationship with 
the hippie space werewolf. Like, from the immediate falling in love to... I mean, I guess it goes beyond dramatic to make out with a dude while he's asleep. That is just not cool, Undercurl. <laughs> and then, yeah, falling madly in love with him, falling madly out of love with him, tearfully swearing him off forever, and then being like, I guess I'll always love him, no matter where he is. It was just like, you're in a different comic book than the rest of these characters, Donna. Like, you're in an overwrought romantic comic book that has hippie space werewolves in it, and the rest of them are in this bizarre action-adventure story about kidnapping the president. It's just a lot going on there, and I had Wonder Girl as my president of the drama club. I think that's that's fair. Thank you. What was your favorite panel? Oof, boy. Let's see. I do like on page 10, the science fiction uh, Olustrian Smurf Village. Hmm. When we're first introduced to what it looks like there. I was very much amused by the fight that one of the initial fight scenes on page 18 where there's a bunch of stuff going on including all of Speedy's rapid fire knockout shafts <laughs> finding their homes in the faces of uh, the space werewolves mm -hmm. but I think my favorite is the final page that shows President Kennedy in a, his space uniform with his swashbuckling buddies battling I don't know space ticks or something at the end yeah, more stereotypical, like, little green men alien type things I, I saw them as. But yeah, no, I had a President Space Pirate Kennedy as my favorite panel, too. My backups were a little bit different. I think my two nearly favorites were probably the Titan Cave with all of their old issues memorabilia in the background. I thought that was really fun. And the Death of Button Gwinnett. Uh, when you saw him getting brutally decapitated and making a funny face about it. Yeah, that, that was humorous, as far as decapitations go. Yeah, probably the funniest decapitation I've seen in a while. Hmm. That's funny, so we got the same panel and the same slang. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see how this category matches up. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and every Teen Titans comic from this era has a Speedy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who is your Aqualad and who was your Speedy? Well, despite the fact that he was shitty in the way that he consoled Donna in her grief, I guess at least he did it kind of behind her back, <laughs> I had... Robin for the hat trick. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, he saved two other presidents from aliens? Well, we'll just have to hope that there's more Bob Haney issues, I guess. Yeah, there aren't. But, I mean, he may have been sworn to secrecy about them. Well, indubitably. Mm -hmm. No, I just wanted to say Robin for the hat trick. Gotcha. But, no, he, despite being shitty in some ways, did you know, take a lot of risks and wind up uh, saving the day. Yeah, I couldn't give it to him. And in fact, I had him as my speedy just for playing with Kennedy's trauma that way. I, I know it worked, but 
that is so fucked up. His shittily grinning his ass off while, quote, consoling, unquote, Wonder Girl. Just across the board, it got results, but the ends do not justify the means, especially when the means make no goddamn sense. I had to give it to Robin. For my Aqualad, I had Wally for his super speed eavesdropping. It's just <laughs> the most titansy thing anyone does, not just in this issue, but maybe ever. If he could have maybe super speed run into a trap while super speed eavesdropping and chugging syrup, that would have been better. But still, super speed eavesdrop session as a kind of aside that that is a standard Titan operating procedure, he got my vote. Yeah, that's fair. For my Beast Boy, I had Speedy because A, he totally fails in his attempt to capture Wondy, and the rest of the time he just basically shoots a bunch of novelty arrows uh, without a lot of good result. And then on the first page, he's just super confusing about what he finds attractive. I agree, and he also says some pretty sexist shit to Wonder Girl during this as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. so does Zora, and so does the subtext of the comic book, but he also does say some fucked up shit about no mere girl can defeat me when he's fighting Wonder Girl, and there's no call for that, Speedy. Mm. Oh. I just realized in what we identified as our favorite panel, that ship that they're standing on says 109 under everybody. Oh, good for him, I guess. Seems like a weird choice. (laughs) I also would maybe question the validity of calling that your lucky hat. I mean, yeah, most of the crew survived, but two people did die and your boat did get destroyed by a Japanese destroyer. So... Maybe not the luckiest. Corey, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you think were most noteworthy in this issue? I had three that jumped out at me. Two of them we've already talked about a fair amount. So on page six, that's the first time that we see the kind of new wave slash old timey slash emo Beatles guys. Mm -hmm. Mods. But uh, yeah, just very purple, nice mop top kind of bob hairdo and tight fitting suits with skinny ties, but also weirdly kind of like riding boots with their trousers tucked in. Yeah, it's like I said, it's a very mod look that they have. And I think it's it's a good look, especially having them be in opposition to the hippie space werewolves, who, yeah, as we touched on, they have a very distinct look as well. Yeah, so Zora has that potleaf headband. He's got a animal print shaggy vest. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I think you describe them as kind of like Aquaman pants. They're like sort of like yoga pants with a scale pattern on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a very distinct look, and, and especially in the page where they first all show up en masse, you see that it's not a uniform look. Like, some of them have puka shell necklaces, some of them don't. Just like hippies. Exactly. Every hippie is different. No two are the same. But yeah, they have different kinds of necklaces and little uh, bags that they wear. One of them just has some, like, little tree branches strapped to his head. They got beards and 
headbands and it's just it's it's a good look. You're right. He doesn't maintain the headband, but sometimes headbands come off during battle or they change their color. So <laughs> or, or you take all the leaves off them and use them to make your pipe scooter go. Yeah. Okay, see the leaves do actually come back on he doesn't have them on page twenty one, but they are on page twenty two. So I think what's being implied is yes, he burned them in his flying upside down pot pipe, uh, but they started to grow back. So he's just trimming them off of the headband to fuel his pipe as he goes. But they regrow quickly. That is a magical headband. <laughs> well, aren't all headbands magical in a way? I'm reminded of the Gosh, it might be around when this issue came out, it might be 2003, that the Portland Trailblazers asked the musical question, can I get a headband? <laughs> Do you remember that era of Trailblazers? Hey, it's vaguely, yeah. Yeah, it was during what has been known as the Jailblazers era, which I, uh, <laughs> I read like a 400-page book on recently that goes into exhaustive detail of every single Trailblazers game for about a four-year period, oh um, but also talks about all the various arrests that they had. But yeah, they released a single called Can I Get a Headband? I think the project was spearheaded by Damon Stoudemire and Bonzi Wells, but I might be misremembering that. And I believe the answer was yes, they could get a headband. And so can Zora. Thank goodness. Well, Corey, I think it's time we took this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a Bozo, either literally or metaphorically, would you like to focus on? There was less options than I had hoped for, but I did find a gem on page, I think, 36, and it's Wonder Girl addressing Speedy, and she says, You're real funny, boy, Bowman. You've learned nothing and forgotten the rest. <laughs> Zing. Uh, mine also comes from Wonder Girl. It's on page 12. And uh, Kid Flash is saying, I don't like it. We're marching along as if we were Gwyneth's breakfast. And Speedy says, maybe he gave up Wheaties. And Wonder Girl responds to them, your humor certainly hasn't improved much, you two. Oh, what a beautiful city. Um... Yeah, she's right. I don't know when it would have improved. <laughs> but there you have it. It is kind of like their humor hasn't improved in the 30 years since Haney last wrote a comic. Is that what he's saying? Or traveling to a different city didn't improve their humor. But uh, either way, she's really calling them bozos. Fair enough. Well, Corey, we're going to do this last bit in a slightly different way. Since this is a throwback to the old Teen Titan Wasteland days for us, and we see what Aqualad is up to, although not nearly enough of what he's up to in this issue, let's see what various original Teen Titans villains were up to. In the year of our Lord, 2008, and the month of our Lord, March. What do you got? March 2008. Hmm. What was going on at that point? So in terms of the uh, old-timey villain, I'm going to focus on uh, the hot rod driving Ding Dong Daddy Dowd. Oh, good old Ding Dong. What's Ding Dong up to? 
So old uh, Triple D had um, shifted gears, so to speak, from cars to Congress. Ah. He found the way to uh, line his pockets more effectively was uh, as a lobbyist rather than as a uh, thief or, or other sort of criminal. So he had just really been lobbying his ass off behind the scenes, which led to on March 11, the Federal Reserve outlining a $200 billion program that let the country's biggest banks borrow uh, treasury securities at discount rates, posting mortgage-backed securities as the, the collateral for those. So we all now know how that worked out, but... Mm-hmm. Not great. It paved the way for, uh, for the TARP, or the Troubled Asset Relief Program, that went into effect later that year in September, which was aimed at stabilizing the financial system by basically, yeah, having the government buy these mortgage-backed securities and bank stocks. So despite there being provisions within TARP that demanded companies that take advantage of it, you know, lose some tax benefits and are supposed to place limits on the executive compensation and forbidding recipients from awarding bonuses to their top, what was it, 25 highest paid executives. Despite all this, by 2009 or so, some of the bailed-out firms had paid in excess of some $20 billion, billion with a B, dollars to key personnel, sardonically, you know, called TARP bonuses, um, mm. of which Ding Dong Daddy Dowd received plenty. Oh, boy. So, you know, TARP is, is, is controversial, right? The advocates say it saved the U.S. financial system and, you know, shortened the crisis from being worse whereas you know critics are saying it was just this unnecessary boost that wall street got but uh triple d is keeping quiet on that front he's just counting his money and working on his classic cars of which mm-hmm. now he has way more <laughs> yeah wouldn't it be quadruple d ding well ding dong would be one word right oh i thought ding dong was two i wrote it as one word i can't remember how it was in the comics fair enough I also would have thought that maybe Ding Dong would have uh, gotten from the auto industry bailout, but... That was part of TARP also, though. They gave money to everybody. Yeah, that's really wetting his Ding Dong beak. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, that's what Ding Dong Daddy was up to in March of 2008. But let's take a look at another old Teen Titans villain. In fact... Let's see what their first villain was up to. Let's take a look at Brom Stick, a.k.a. Mr. Twister. Last we saw him, he was menacing the town of Hatton's Corners, kidnapping their teens, and using his cloak made of passenger pigeon feathers and magic stick to control the weather. Now, since then, hard times have fallen upon Mr. Stick. He uh, recently got out of prison and before that had hawked his magic stick. When he went back to the pawn shop, he found out that it had been sold. So he was trying to track down what could have possibly happened to his magic weather controlling stick. Now, Rom's stick was always a bit of a literalist and had trouble understanding modern lingo. So when he overheard someone on ESPN say that the Dallas Mavericks were really making it rain from long distance, he thought, they must have my stick. (laughs) So he uh, caught a flight down to Dallas and was dismayed when he got there to find that 
That ESPN analyst was just talking about the fact that Dirk Nowitzki, Jason Terry, and J.J. Barea were hitting a lot of three-point shots. He was very upset when he learned that and decided to buy himself a ticket home. But on his way back to the airport, he saw that a movie theater was playing a new movie called Drillbit Taylor. And he read the synopsis of that film and found that it was about a full-grown man who decided to fight some teenagers and thought, well, this sounds like the movie for me. <laughs> so he used up the last remaining reserves of the weather-controlling energy stored in his passenger pigeon feathers and caused a snowstorm in Dallas that grounded over 500 flights that March and went to the movie theater and saw Drillbit Taylor, and he thought that it was just fine. And that is what Brom Stick was probably up to in March of 2008. Wow. Yep. It's uh, a lot of choices he made. He really did. <laughs> Going to Dallas, seeing some basketball, watching Drillbit Taylor, thinking it was okay. You ever see that movie? Uh, no, I don't, I don't know that one. No, me either. It's probably fine. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Corey, for this uh, momentous episode. You're welcome. And thank you, listeners, for joining us over the past five or six or four or indeterminate amount of time. Decades. <laughs> Which is... As we have established, a flat circle. As we talk about weird-ass comic books. We'll be back next week with a Defenders issue. We'll find out what happens after Tunnel World, and I'm looking forward to that. And then we'll be back in a couple of weeks and get back to the Brother Blood story. But uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, this weird kind of one-off issue where we talk about an old Haney comic. I, en I enjoyed making it. If you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you'd like to find us on the social medias, well, we're probably in there somewhere. Just type in Tighten up the defense, that's T-I-T-A-N, into your web browser and see what the fisherman brings in. Probably it'll be a fresh batch of me talking some stupid nonsense. So look forward to that if you didn't get enough of it just now. And hey, if you can't find us in those places, there's one other place you can look, and that's inside your heart. We'll be there, maybe hanging out with Space Pirate President Jack Kennedy. You never know, and we'll never tell, because it's the ultimate secret. <laughs> if you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There's the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. And there's also a whole bunch of bonus video reviews of classic comic books and other bonus podcasts that we have on there. So 
If you donate, you get exclusive access to all of that. But mostly it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work that we do on the show and would like us to keep doing it. It really has made a huge difference to me in terms of my ability to pay my mortgage. So thank you so much for that. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, a great way to do that is to leave a review for us in a place where reviews can be left. If you're not sure if you can leave a review in a place, well, do your best. What's the worst that can happen? Oh gosh, no. Don't ask that question anymore. <laughs> it's been a year of learning not to ask that question. But just, uh, just you know, try to leave us a review someplace. Say some nice words like, Wow, 200 episodes. Huh, didn't see that coming. Yeah, you can leave us a backhanded one. Like, I, I don't read sarcasm that well, especially if it's just in text. So I'll never know. If you want to give us a sarcastic five-star review, that would certainly teach me a lesson. Uh, or give us a genuine one. The important thing, five-star review. And if you're not sure if you can leave a review, do your best. In summation, Listeners, we're pointy yellow fruit about you. I'm making finger guns right now. Oh, okay. Can you feel them? Yep. Nice. Pew, pew. Any final thoughts? You kind of stole my pointy yellow fruit thunder. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. It's okay. No, I got got nothing. Just thanks. All right. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. whiskey i'm sorry Corey. it's okay i should have poured a double for this one <laughs> <laughs>